Let me invite you now to grab a Bible and uh, open it to Exodus 17, and we'll start there. I'll explain in a moment, but for while you're finding Exodus 17, um, this uh, Sin Quan An thing that we do this coming Friday night, we only do it once a year, really, and um, it's a it's one of the most creative things that I've ever seen uh, included in the church calendar. Um, I hope you'll be a part. Gentlemen, uh, you want a date with your wife? Uh, there's free food here. There's art, which will mean that we're going to have to step up our sophistication, which is going to be very difficult on some of us. But um, uh, come be with us Friday night, 6 to 8. You come get something to eat, look at art, and then uh, go to a movie or whatever. Sweet, fun, creative night. Now, um, I have a long passage for you this morning. Actually, it's two. I'm going to read from Exodus and from Numbers 20. Uh, The reason I'm doing, I don't like to read to you this long because I know you don't like to be read to, but um, there are some real commonalities and similarities in these two stories. Let me tell you up front, they are not a parallel passage. One occurs in a region called Rephidim, the other uh, takes place in a region called Kadesh. But uh, they're both about water, and uh, you'll see that. But the, the commonality that, that I most have in mind is not about the water. But you'll see it, I bet, as I read it. So you follow as I read, beginning at verse 1 of Exodus 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock. (coughs) Pardon me. And water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, over to Numbers 20. We'll begin at verse 2 of Numbers 20. Similar incident. Now there was no water for the congregation and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, 
Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. Water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, what I've just read you, this will endure forever. Have you ever wondered about God's reaction to Moses and Aaron in Numbers 20? Didn't, didn't that seem to be just a little bit of an overreaction to you, or did it? Wow, they don't get to go in the promised land because why? They disobeyed? Oh my goodness. Is that, is that all it takes? Why is God so upset with Aaron and Moses? We'll talk about that before we're done. Guys, um, surely I'm not the first to have noticed that in the Old Testament you get Exodus 15, bitter water. We looked at that. Exodus 16, no bread. Exodus 17, no water. And then Numbers 20, no water. What is going on? Um, These are not exactly what you'd call extravagances. Um, It's not caviar and wine they're looking for. It's just, can God meet my basic needs? Um, there is a petition in the, the um, Lord's Prayer that says, give us this day our daily bread. And we could use some water as well. Uh, that's all this is about. Bread and water. Hunger and thirst. Now, folks, um, there are only a few days that separate Exodus 17 from Exodus 15. Remember in Exodus 15, we looked at it about three weeks ago, there was bitter water and they threw a log in there and and sweetened it up. That was Exodus 15. Then Exodus 16 is about manna, the bread, the absence of food. And then in Exodus 17, you get another water event where the problem is not bitter water, the problem is no water. But between those two events, Exodus 15 and Exodus 17, there's only a few days. But between Exodus 17... And Numbers 20, there's approximately 40 years. Uh, Close to 40 years between Exodus 17 and Numbers chapter 20. Now, as I read those two stories from Exodus 17 and Numbers 20, I, I bet you noticed that they had something in common. Well, there's a lot of things, actually. No water is one of them. But the big piece of similarity, the big commonality between these two stories, the one in Rephidim and the one in Kadesh, Exodus 17, Numbers 20, the big similarity is the rock. We're going to talk about that rock. But before we get there, I wanted to, see you, I wanted to show you a couple of other things from this story, which aren't as important as the rock, but I hope will be beneficial for you as well. First of all, Exodus 17, at Rephidim. This is the last stop that Israel will make on its way to Sinai. The next stop will be at Sinai where they'll receive the Ten Commandments. That's important. But this is the thing that I don't want you to miss. I want you to notice, 
you, you cannot miss this, that they are right where God wants them to be. We're told in verse 1 that they were led there according to the commandment of the Lord. They are at Rephidim because God led them to Rephidim. They are not on the wrong path. They are on the right path. And there in the midst of being led by God, they come to a spot, a spot that they did not pick, a spot where there's no water. Now, do you really think that God didn't know that there was no water there? Do you think he was surprised? Oh, I didn't mean to lead y'all here. Uh, I didn't really realize there was no water there. Of course not, ladies and gentlemen. This difficulty of no water is God-ordained. And so is ours. Brother and sister, God is up to something in the lives of Israel with this difficulty. And he is up to something with us in the midst of our difficulties. You know, I, I, as a pastor of 45 years, I, I, uh, I think that so many of our disappointments, so many of our disillusionments as, as God's people is because we, we simply have forgotten that, I guess, forgotten that, or maybe never knew it. Um, we have forgotten that being on the right path doesn't exclude us from difficulty. Or maybe it's that we've, we've misunderstood the nature of the wilderness. Remember, I, I told you three weeks ago that the wilderness I'm, I'm using in the sense of the life that we now live. We came out of bondage. We're going through the wilderness on our way to the promised land. That, that this wilderness experience that we have, the life that we now live, is not one that exempts us from difficulty. Folks, um, this earth is not the promised land. These people in Exodus 17 have a promised land in front of them. So do we. But while we're on the way there, we're, you can count on it that you're often going to be in places where the water is bitter or there's no water at all. That's what it means to live in a fallen world. Folks, in this life, the water is not always sweet. The sweet water, and plenty of it, is in the promised land. Um, do these words ring a bell? In this world, you will have tribulation. You know who said that? That was Jesus in John 16. That's a promise, ladies and gentlemen. But every time one of these things pops its ugly head up, we don't seem to remember that. Folks, um, in these tribulations, in these difficulties, God is up to something, just like he's up to something with these things. And in the midst of facing those and dealing with those difficulties, God is showing to us over and over again his faithfulness to us. Which brings me to my second point. That means that this event in Exodus 17 is particularly ugly. Really ugly. Well, why? 
Well, guys, you may remember that back in Exodus 15, where the water was bitter, we we were told, and I made this point, that God tested Israel. But did you notice the difference in this story? It wasn't God testing them, it was them testing God. It's it's said a couple of times in the text, uh, verse 2 and verse 7. You you see, when, when God tests me, my faithfulness is in question, and rightly so, because I'm unfaithful. But for them to test him is for them to call into question God's faithfulness to them. That is so offensive in heaven, apparently, that this event gets mentioned again in Psalm 95, and then it gets rediscussed in Hebrews chapter 3 in the New Testament. It is as if God is insulted that you would call it, that we would call into question his faithfulness to us. Tell me, do you know of any time, any one time, could you point to any one time where God proved to be unfaithful to you or to me or to us or to any of us? Can you point to one time where God proved that he was not faithful to his promises? Any time. And yet, what is going on here? in Exodus 17, is that these people are questioning that faithfulness or God's faithfulness to them. So you see in this story, do you see what's being exposed? It's not the unfaithfulness of God that's being exposed. No, no. What's being exposed is their unbelief. Their hearts are still in Egypt. Did you notice that was consistent in all three stories of water? What about Egypt? Why did we ever leave there? Shouldn't we go back there? In Exodus 15, in Exodus 17, and Numbers 20. They're still pining for the bondage of Egypt. Um, guys, every, every murmur, every complaint, that we have is directed against a God who says in Ephesians 1 verse 11 that he works all things after the counsel of his will. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God works all things after the counsel of his own will? Well, maybe we're not quite so sure about that. Oh, uh, these people say it's Moses that they question. But apparently God saw through that Uh, look at verse 7 where it says because of the the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord and you want to know how they tested him it's right there they said well is the Lord among us or not now gang remember this is after all those ten plagues and parting the Red Sea making the waters of Mara sweet after uh, providing bread and and quail in in Exodus 16, and they're still asking, well, wait a minute. You see, I'm in another difficulty. Is God among us or not? Can't 
Can't you just hear the unbelief dripping from that question? Guys, I, I showed you a couple of weeks ago this statement in Deuteronomy 1 about, it's in verse 26, where the people say, and Moses is quoting them, because you hated us, you brought us out. Remember that? After all he had done, because you hated us. That's, that's what they believe, and here's what he wants them to believe. This is in verse 30, Deuteronomy 1. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. What he wants us to believe is that he's our advocate, that he'll fight for us in the midst of all difficulty. But what we believe is that this situation in which I now found myself is evidence that he hates me. How did we ever get here? Was it based on his unfaithfulness to you? Where did you see did you see it? How have we come to the place where we want to, even though we know that statement about him working all things after the counsel of his own will, what we really want to ask, because of our circumstances, well, is God among us or not? I mean, is he here or is he not here? That's what I want to know. You're, you're going to need to show up and prove that to me all over again. I know you proved it to me 10 times back there in Egypt, and then that Red Sea, that was a biggie. Oh, I like that one. And then that, the, the, the quail and the water and the abyss. Yeah, but, you know, after all that you've done for me over the course of my Christian life, is God among us or not? Do I belong to him or not? You know, we've got four events here, folks. Exodus 15, Exodus 16, Exodus 17, and Numbers 20. And in all four of these stories, the lesson is the same. Those who God saves, he fights for. But we're not so sure about that. We're not really not that convinced that even though I may think I belong to him, let, let the first inkling of a difficulty raise its ugly head. And what we do is wonder. You know, I've told you this before that C.S. Lewis is one of my heroes. Well, C.S. Lewis wrote a book. He's wrote, he, writ, he wrote several. But one of the books that doesn't commonly or often get, re- get read is the, a book entitled God in the Dock. What, do you know what that means? I mean, it's not anything to do with a boat. Uh, it's, it's kind of English language. It's a British language about God on trial. That's what the book is about. That's what we are. We are people questioning, because of a difficulty, questioning, well, is he here with me or not? Can you not hear the unbelief that drips from that question? Folks, the, the, the murmur is not against Moses. It's not against Aaron. It's against God. In view of all that he has accomplished by bringing me out of bondage, he promises to fight for me. You believe that? Those are the two things that I wanted you to see before we got to what is really the the heart of the text. I think you know it to be the heart of the text. It has to do with this, this rock. That rock is struck. Actually, it's struck three times. 
but only one of those strikings was approved by God. Why? Well, stay with me. Let me, let me point out four quick things that I hope will lead you to an answer to that question. Why, why, why was God so upset about that rock being struck? So, uh, so upset that he disqualified Moses and Aaron from ever entering the promised land because they, because they lost their temper? Is that how they get rewarded? No promised land for you, buddy, because you lost your temper. Oh my gosh, we're all in trouble. Why is God so upset? Stay with me. Number one, if you'll notice in verse 6 of chapter 17, God says, I, uh, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. That is, that God is promising Moses to be there on the rock, so you immediately see this close connection between the rock and God's presence. Um, somehow, that rock and God's presence are to be identified, one with the other. Number two, um, folks, I, I told you at the very beginning that this event in Exodus 17 happens early on, even before Sinai. The Numbers 20 event happens 40 years later. But there is a rock in Exodus 17, and there is a rock in Numbers chapter 20. Apparently, that rock, whatever it is, that rock has been traveling with Israel the whole time. That rock has been there with Israel for 40 years. Third, the term rock is a name that is often used in the Psalms to, to identify God. It appears like 20 times that God is called... <clears throat> um, that they remember that God was their rock. That's used often in the Psalms. It's used several times in the book of Deuteronomy. And then fourthly, the remedy for Israel's problem came out of that rock. The, 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 the solution to the problem came out of that rock, a smitten rock. A stricken rock. Now, with that in mind, if you've got a Bible at your disposal, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's in the New Testament. You need to see this. There's four verses there. I'm not going to read all four. I'm just going to read two and a half of them. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, and it says, uh, and all were baptized into Moses. This is a reference to this um, experience in the Old Testament. In the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food. That's manna, a reference to man in verse 3. And all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Now, let me, let, me, let me summarize that real quick. Um, God identifies himself with that rock in verse 6 of chapter 17 of Exodus. Um, that's a name that is used for him quite frequently. That rock followed them for the 40 years. There was always a rock with traveling Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. And finally, the, rest, the, 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 the solution to the problem came out of that rock. Now we come to the New Testament, and the New Testament says... That rock was Christ. Now, 
How are we to understand that? It's difficult, I'll grant you that. But here's my best guess. That uh, during the wilderness experience of Israel for 40 years, there was a rock, a real rock, that became a symbol of God's presence. You see all this mention in 1 Corinthians 10 about spiritual food, spiritual water, etc., spiritual rock. But that rock became the symbol of God's presence with them for those 40 years. But you also have to weave this in somehow. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4 says, that rock was Christ. There is an equation there. Rock equals Christ. Now you know why God was so upset and Moses got in such trouble striking it. Stay with me. Folks, in Exodus chapter 17, Exodus 17, Rephidim, Moses is told to strike that rock. And out of that smitten rock, life-giving water gushes. But in Numbers chapter 20, he is told to speak to the rock. But he disobeys and strikes it twice. Why? Why did he, I, I, I don't know, made some kind of petulant display of frustration with the people. Or maybe, maybe God is upset um, that Moses and Aaron are supposed to be leaders in, as, and as such, they're supposed to be exemplary in their behavior. I'm sure that's in there. But there is something far, far bigger than those two things, ladies and gentlemen, at play in this story. That rock was Christ. And Christ is to be struck in Exodus 17. He is to be inflicted with a wound that becomes the hiding place for all of his people and it becomes a source of living water. That gash inflicted upon that rock in Exodus 17 heavenly ordained because that rock was Christ and he was to be smitten once but he is to be smitten only once no further strike is permitted nor is it needed there is only one cross, ladies and gentlemen. Christ suffers only once. And that one suffering is fully adequate to save his people from their sin. The book of Hebrews in chapters 9 and 10 discuss that over and over and over again. That Christ dies once and that is quite enough. The very thought of a repetition of that saving event is blasphemy. Ladies and gentlemen, and that is exactly what Rome does in their mass when they re-sacrifice Christ over and over again. The father says to his son, I will never ask you to die again. The Mosaic system of the Old Testament required that payment for sin be made again and again, repeatedly, continually, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. 
the father says, this is my beloved son. To think of his willingness to die in the place of sinners at all is stupefying. But that that one death is very much enough. No more is needed. Nothing need be added to save any sinner, no matter what they've done. His dying once is enough. Guys, I've told you this story before, maybe twice. I'm going to tell you once more because I, I think it's appropriate as we close. When Jesus was crucified, from the cross, Jesus says, makes seven statements. The seven, the last words of Christ. You, you can find a book in that, by that title. In those seven dying words, one of the things that he said was this. It is finished. That's how your, your translations will have it. It is finished. Now, what did he mean? Was he saying, well, you know, time's up. Life's over for me. I live my 33 years. It's over. I quit. It's done. Is that what he's saying? Not a chance, ladies and gentlemen. Well, how do you know that, Dr. Young? How do you know that? Well, let me explain how I know that. Folks, the Greek word that is translated, it is finished, is the Greek word to telestai. It is a Greek verb, or it's a participle, found in the present tense, a present participle. And in the Greek language, a present participle communicates this action, something that was begun and completed in the past, but has present lasting effects. That's the Greek language. That was, that's the, the, the precision of the Greek language. That it was an action begun and completed in the past, but has present lasting effects. Jesus, when he said it is finished, he used the Greek word to tell us die in the present participle, which means he's describing an action that was begun and completed in the past, but has present lasting effects. In 1947, it's a true story. In 1947, a, a young shepherd boy was playing around the caves encircling the Dead Sea. He threw a rock into one of those caves and he heard something break. He went inside the cave and made what is considered to be the greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century. It's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. In those series of caves around the Dead Sea, there were thousands of manuscripts, several of the Old Testament. Um, and there were also in that discovery thousands of what were called bills of lading. You'll, you'll, you'll like this word better. Receipts, invoices found in the Dead Sea, uh, in those, those caves around the Dead Sea. On the bottom of those invoices or receipts, there was a word written on the bottom of the invoice. The Greek word found on the bottom of those invoices was the word to tell us die. Do you know what it meant on those receipts? It meant paid in full. That the transaction was completed. That nothing else need be added. Because as far as this transaction is concerned, to tell us die. Ladies and gentlemen, when Jesus Christ hung from the cross and he says, 
tetelestai. What he means is, it's done. It's paid for. Everything that your sin has earned is paid for. Nothing else need be added. No more needs to be done. Because Jesus Christ has died once. Don't ever ask him to die again. That rock was to be smitten. But it was to be smitten once. And out of that wound flows life-giving water for every sinner that deserves hell. Yes, he was stricken once. And that was enough for all of my sin. And all of yours. It is finished. One death of the Son of God It is enough. Oh, that should be glory for me. Someone who stands guilty before a righteous, holy God, the rock. has been smitten. And it is enough. Our Father, would you remind your people this morning that the provision that you have made is very much complete. There need nothing be added, not our baptism or our confirmation or any such other ludicrous notion would you would you prompt in us a return to the safety of the smitten rock would you remind us that the solution to all our sin comes flowing out of its side and that there we must hide. Father, if you have led people here today who have not yet met Jesus Christ, would you allow them to see him in all of his smitten beauty? Might the eye of the unbeliever see that Christ and him crucified is all that is needed, no matter what, 
our sins of the past may be. Might your people hide there with great joy. Do that, O oh God, for Jesus' sake.